good morning, Northridge. How are you guys? It is so good to see you guys. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge. I want to welcome all of you watching online. We're so grateful that you're with us as well. We're in the summer series, and I don't know about you, but it's been a blast for me. I've loved all the different speakers we've been able to hear from, and God's moving in some really cool and powerful ways this summer. And I believe today will be more of the same. Uh, I really believe that anytime like, you get into God's Word, it's like this mirror that reflects back to us, right? And we see things maybe in ways we didn't see it before. So I believe that's going to happen today for all of us. But I think for a handful of you, this will be a life-changing message. Um, and not just life-changing. I think it could be legacy-changing. I believe it's that important. I think some of you are just at a place in your life where you need to hear this deeply. And I'm praying for you that God will just open your mind and your heart uh, to receive this. Uh, because I think it's, 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 a, it's a powerful concept that we're going to kind of dig into today over these next few minutes. And i got to kind of set it up for you. It's Ephesians chapter 6. Today's message is brought to you by the Holy Spirit and Red Bull. And so... Um, <laughs> Apologize if, if I go a little fast sometimes, all right? So here we go, a final word. So this is Paul, it's like a final word. Anytime someone's giving you a final word, it's like the PS. I don't know about you, but if someone writes me an email and I glance down at the bottom, I see a PS, I read the PS first, right? Because I'm like, okay, where's, where's this going, right? I, I wanna know, like, he's like saying, hey, don't forget this, this is really important. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put in all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. Wow, so the devil has like strategy, okay? For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to the Bible, Reading something like this, it just sounds weird to you. You're like, what? Like, you guys believe there's an unseen world? You believe, like, there's a devil and he has, like, strategies? Like, I get, like, I get it. This sounds really weird. But Scripture, this is not the only place. A lot of different places confirms a couple really important truths that I think we all need to be aware of when it comes to our lives, right? So there's three truths I grab out of this. Truth one, there's an invisible world. There's an unseen spiritual realm that you and I are not privy to on a daily basis. There's a drama that you don't see that's unfolding day in and day out. Truth number two is that we're involved in an invisible war. And this is where it gets kind of weird for some of you. You're like, what? A war? There's a, a war? Yeah. Yeah. What scripture says is that anytime you're moving in your life towards goodness, when you're moving towards joy, when you're moving towards God's purposes for your life, right? When you're, when you're moving towards, per, when you're moving in the direction towards goodness, that there's an all out opposition against that. And so my story and your story is the story, right? Of, of, of a long, brutal assault for our hearts from an evil one who knows who you could be and fears it, all right? So that's what scripture teaches. There's an invisible world. We're involved in an invisible war. And truth number three is our invisible enemy is crazy clever. This is why Paul goes out of his way to say, strategy. he used that word, there's a strategy 
that he's using to destroy your heart and your soul. Scripture reminds us, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he has this strategy. And, and what I would say is, I, I want to be real careful here. Some people get obsessed with this, this idea that there's an unseen world and there's an invisible war that's taking place. This isn't something for you to obsess about. It's not even something for you to fear, but it is something for you to be aware of. And that's why it says stay alert. So that's all today is. I, I just, I just want to kind of remind all of us, whoa, hey, we better stay alert because there's a lot that's going on day in and day out. And for me, this idea that there's an invisible world and that there's an invisible war that's being waged against my heart and my soul, honestly, it doesn't scare me. It makes everything make a little more sense, right? You, you ever get to a place where you're like, what? Why do I keep struggling with these things? Why do I keep making these same stupid mistakes over and over and over? Like, it just makes a lot more sense when you start to understand, okay, all right, there, there's an invisible world. There's an invisible battle that's taking place day out and day out in my life that I need to be aware of. So when the Bible talks about the evil one has strategies, what does that look like? Like in real life, like how does this play out? Because the whole roaring lion thing, looking for someone to devour, like that paints a picture, but how does this really play out in life? And I'm gonna show you two examples out of scripture today. I'm gonna to start in Luke four, and this is Jesus um, when he's in the wilderness, all right? And it says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. I'll tell you what happened at the Jordan. Uh, the Jordan's where he's baptized. So John the Baptist baptizes him. He hears the voice from his heavenly father. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is on a spiritual high, special moment, right? But then the spirit leads him into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, we read that story and we're like, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, to turn some stones into bread, like, why not? Like, that's a really cool, like, party trick, right? I mean, it, it, it's Jesus' first miracle is actually going to be turning water into wine. So why not make some bread to go along with it, right? I mean, that would be cool. It's like, well, what, what's the deal here? I mean, there's, there's no commandment, thou shalt not have a dinner roll on Tuesday or anything like that. And so we read this and we're like, ah, but, but Jesus knows there's more going on. And he's aware of the strategy that the evil one uses time and time again with us. And it's to convince you that God is withholding something good from you. That there's a life out there that you could have that's amazing and fun and joy filled and purpose filled. But that God's trying to keep you from it. Now, how does that work. Because I just say that, you're like, no, I'm not falling for that. But we fall for it all the time. So how, how does that happen? How does this strategy work? And I think it happens through what some have called appetite confusion. I'd never heard that term until maybe 10, 12 years ago. A pastor by the name of Andy Stanley talked about this idea of appetite confusion. And, and, and the concept behind it is that we all have certain appetites. These are God-given appetites. Often in our culture, we would call them desires. And every one of the God-given desires that you have in your life, uh, there's a purpose to it. 
So you have a God-given desire to eat. It's a God-given desire to have sex. I'm sure there's some others, but that's really all I can think of right now. I'm just kidding. He gave you the desire. Blame that one on the Red Bull, all right? Um, He gave you the desire to create, to have community, influence, love, recognition, progress, acceptance. These are embedded into your life. God created you with them. And, And they're beautiful appetites, right? Every one of them has a purpose. And either you'll rule your appetite or your appetite will rule you. And some of the deepest, most painful most regrettable moments and seasons of your life came when you had appetite confusion and you chased after something you thought was going to pay off and it didn't. Now, there's three things that I want us to kind of wrestle with that we really need to know about appetites. And the first one is this. God created them, but sin distorted them. So every single desire you have, every appetite that you have, again, God-given but sin has distorted them. They're distorted. They're often mislabeled. And can we agree that labels can often be misleading? Have you ever seen a label, uh, easy assembly? <laughs> can be very misleading, right? right? Or doctor recommended? What doctor, right? Who, who's the doctor that, that recommended this? Uh, in our house, we have, uh, there's this box, I always get it at Costco, and it has like a hundred like, fruit snacks in it, little bags of fruit snacks, gummy, like fruit gummy type things. And they're they're in the shape of fruit. But if you actually read the ingredients, there's really not a whole lot of fruit in them. They're in the shape of fruit. They sometimes kind of look like fruit, but, but there's not a whole lot to it other than a bunch of like corn syrup and stuff, right? That's probably not super healthy for you. In fact, I thought this, I found this this week, uh, fruit roll-ups. They, they recently had to change their packaging because a mom actually kind of dug in and started reading the ingredients. And it used to say made with real fruit. Now it just says fruit flavored snacks because what they discovered, it was like point, this, uh, this was on strawberry sensation too, by the way, not that we need to get this detailed with it, but on strawberry sensation, the only actual fruit in it was pear concentrate uh, at a very, very small percentage. So they got dinged on that one and they had to change it to fruit flavored snacks. But the good news is you get tongue tattoos on every roll so that everybody can know the junk that you just partake in, right? And so the point is this, you better not always trust the label. Sometimes you need to look at the ingredients. And I'm just telling you right now in our culture today, there's a lot of things that get slapped with certain labels, but when you start looking at the ingredients, it's something quite different. And so be careful of the labels. There's tons of things these days that get labeled freedom. Yep, you believe this way, you do this, show up at this. It's about freedom. You scratch under the surface, though, and uh, it's not really about freedom, is it? A lot of things these days that get labeled social justice, but when you dig a little bit, kind of look at the ingredients, it's not really social justice. A lot of things in our culture that get labeled happiness, significance, scratch under the surface, Ingredients say it's something else. And so you gotta be aware. You have these God-given appetites and desires, but we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And for all of us, our appetites and desires have been distorted. So you gotta be careful. 
Second thing, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Psychologists sometimes call this, call this a hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill. And the idea behind it is that we tend to become accustomed to whatever level of happiness we've achieved. And then we start looking to the next thing. It's exactly why you're rarely happy with how much money you make. And you remember when you made $25,000, you thought, man, if I could ever make $40,000, I'd be set. And then you made $40,000 and it didn't take you long to adjust to that level of happiness. And then you felt like you needed 60,000. We do the same thing with cars, houses, sometimes people. That's why you're never fully and finally satisfied. Your aspirations look ahead to what you don't have. We do this with food, right? Have you ever had just like an amazing meal and like you eat way too much of it, right? And you kind of take a big deep breath and you push yourself away from the table and you're like, I am never going to eat again. I am so full. But then the next morning about 7 a.m. you're looking for a Chick-fil-A and a chicken biscuit. Right? Like, an appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. You have to understand that to really get this concept we're talking about. We get in trouble when we think there's someone or something that's going to absolutely fully and finally fulfill an appetite. You're never going to have enough. You're never going to have a nice enough car. You're never going to have perfect enough children. You're never going to look beautiful enough. You're never going to get high enough on that ladder. You're never going to get enough likes on that Instagram post. It's just never quite enough, which means there's always going to be a tension there. And you have to be aware of that tension or it's going to lead you down a destructive path. And then the third thing, and I'm going to land on this one for a second, is that your appetites always whisper now, never later. Right? The, the temptation here is always to trade the ultimate for the immediate. And if instant gratification is kind of your internal GPS system, you're headed for trouble. Let me show you that second example I was telling you about. This is a story out of the Old Testament. It's Genesis chapter 25. It's about two brothers, Esau and Jacob. Kind of quick background. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we actually talked about Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham's this guy that God comes to and says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. But he has no kids. Goes through a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Finally, God blesses him with a son named Isaac, right? And Isaac kind of represents the future. This great nation is going to pass through him. Well, Isaac has two sons. That's the two boys we're looking at right here, Esau and Jacob. And they're twins, but Esau's born first, which is a big deal. It means he gets the birthright, right? So the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now that's a big deal, okay, this whole birthright thing. And, and he's taking advantage of the situation, right? I, any of you have older brothers? Anybody? Yep. You know then that it's not often that the older brother needs something from you. But when they do, 
you're going to shoot for the moon, right? You're going to go for like the most like important thing that they have because you know that this is your chance and that's what's happening. The birthright in this culture represents a couple really important things. Um, number one, it meant a lot of money. Uh, getting the birthright meant you get 2x, 3x what the other siblings would get. Number two, it meant that you got power. So you were going to be the head of the family one day. And then number three, they believed that you got God's blessing. It's, it's, it's like if you had the birthright, it was almost like God was forced to bless your life. Your life was going to go really good. So everybody, you know, the birthright is a big deal. And so Jacob's just like, all right, you want some of my stew? Sell me your birthright. He says, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. It's funny, like all he asked for was the stew. But Jacob's like, well, since you gave me the birthright, I'll throw in some bread, right? Uh, and he ate and he drank and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, again, we read this story and we're like, who would do that? That's got to be made up. Who in the world would trade their birthright and all the value that comes along with that for a, a lousy bowl of stew, right? Who, who would do that? Who would make a mistake like that? Who would trade their future for something as invaluable as a temporary bowl of stew? Who would throw away their marriage? Who would potentially throw away the respect of their children, of the reputation in the community, of their influence in the community, their future, their freedom for something as invaluable as a bowl of stew? You know who would do that? You and I would both do that. We would absolutely trade our future for a bowl of stew if it were the right bowl of stew. Because we all find ourselves in moments and seasons where we have appetite confusion. And appetites are unbelievably powerful. So Esau says, look, I'm about to die. <laughs> I'm gonna starve to death. What good is the birthright? We're not gonna have the bowl of stew. Again, what's he doing? He's trading the ultimate for the immediate. And every single one of us, we have these moments where our appetite becomes larger than life right? This is a psychological reality. They call this impact bias. Impact bias is where your brain takes a simple appetite and blows it way out of proportion. And so what your brain tells you is that this thing, whatever it is that you're chasing after, that this thing is going to feel a lot better than it's actually going to feel, and that it's going to last a lot longer than it's actually going to last. Something in your brain tells you this will satisfy you, even though it never does. And that's exactly why Esau says, why do I need a birthright? That's not going to do me any good right now. What I need is a bowl of stew. And so they make the trade. And Esau in this moment has no idea what's at stake. I read this story and I feel for Esau because I've been Esau. I've made, I've had appetite confusion. I have traded at times the ultimate for the immediate. And what I wish I could have done with Esau, I wish I could jump into this story right at this moment and just say, Esau, don't do this, man. Don't do this. You have no idea, Esau, 
what's at stake here? Because I'll tell you what's at stake. It's just such a cool story. Again, I would want to say to Esau, Esau, listen, if you'll hold on to your birthright, man, a lot of amazing things are going to happen to your life. You hold on to this birthright, I'll tell you what's going to happen for you. You're going to have 12 sons, and they're all going to form these 12 tribes. And one day they're going to come together to become the great nation of Israel. They're going to spend 400 years in slavery, and it's going to be a very difficult season, but they're going to emerge from that, this powerful nation called God's people. All that's going to come through you, Esau, if you hold on to this birthright. And oh, Esau, there's another cool moment in your future, dude. This is incredible. Like, God's going to raise up a guy by the name of Moses. He's who's going to lead your family, if you hold on to your birthright. He's who's going to lead your family out of the 400 years of slavery. And God's going to actually appear to this man, Moses, through a burning bush. And he's going to introduce himself to Moses using your name. The God of the universe is going to use your name to introduce himself. He's going to show up to Moses and he's going to say, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's going to happen for you if you hold on to the birthright. God's people are going to come through you. But nobody's there that day to reframe his appetite. And he gives away the birthright. And years and years later, God shows up in front of Moses and he introduces himself. But if you know scripture, he introduces himself, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In that moment, his entire legacy implodes on him because there's no one there to reframe the appetite. And guess what? There's probably not going to be anybody standing next to you to reframe your appetite either. This is why... The temptation of the evil one can be so effective on really smart, good people. Temptation only works if the inevitable future that you're headed for is somehow concealed. And Esau's future was concealed from him in that moment, and he traded the ultimate for the immediate. That's how temptation works. So let's, let's make this personal, okay? What's your bull do? Because I know we all have one. Some of us have multiple bulls of stew, right? What's your bull of stew? What is it that's being dangled out in front of you right now that is unbelievably tempting to you because you think, like, this could be your purpose? This could be your passion. You could finally discover the love that you've really wanted your whole life or the acceptance that you've wanted your whole life. Maybe you feel like this would finally give you the power that you need. In this what is it that's being dangled in front of you right now that is just unbelievably attractive to you? Could be a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. Oh, and it hadn't crossed any major lines right now. Just a few texts, right? Just a few texts, keeping it light, just kind of flirty. But you know it's wrong. You know it's not gonna lead towards anything that's actually gonna give you what you want. For some of you, maybe it's that financial deal. It's just a little less than legal, but man, you feel like it could set you up for life. You never have to worry about money again. It's a bowl of stew that seems really attractive, right? Um, for some of you, it could be an addiction that you just keep going back to over and over and over again. And sure, it hasn't paid off for you in the past, 
right? But, but maybe this time it's going to work. Maybe it's going to help you. Maybe it'll give you the peace and the joy that you need. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea what the bowl of stew is that's being dangled out in front of you. But what I do know, especially when you have appetite confusion, is it seems so unbelievably powerful. And what's interesting about the bowl of stew is it doesn't always even taste good. Now, for some of you, you know what your bowl of stew is right now? Bitterness and anger. You're refusing to forgive somebody. And so you're just slurping up that stew, bitterness, anger, thinking somehow it's gonna impact the other person when really it's just the poison that you're eating, ruining your life, not impacting them at all. What's your bowl of stew? What are you tempted to chase after, to hold on to, to get, thinking it's gonna give you something it could never give you? Here's what I know about you. What's true of Esau is also true of you. You probably have no idea what God really wants to accomplish through your life. No idea what God wants to accomplish through your children. You have no idea what God might want to accomplish through your grandchildren. There's a lot at stake. Um, I'm really blessed uh, to grow up in the family I grew up in. My grandfather was a pastor for over 40 years. Uh, and I got to spend all my years growing up watching him kind of do his thing. Um, had a really sweet, bittersweet moment last night. Uh, my grandparents live in Toledo and my grandpa's in his final days. And so I drove down last night after the service to spend a little time with him. And it's hard, uh, he doesn't know who I am. And that, that's difficult, right? Some of you have been through that in some very painful ways to watch a loved one's memory just kind of disappear. It was a cool moment, though. Uh, he doesn't really remember people. He doesn't know who his kids are, his grandkids are. Every once in a while, I get a little glimpse, right? And he tries to play along. It's kind of funny. Uh, but he can remember a couple events here and there. A year and a half ago, I was able to bring my grandparents to glory of Christmas. And he remembers that for some reason. He remembers Gloria Christmas. We talked about it last night and he remembers coming to this church and he was like, that was the most amazing Christmas thing I've ever seen. And that was really kind of cool to have that, that shared memory with him. Um, but last night there were a couple things that the family wanted me to have. One of them is his Bible from, I think it's 1951. It's when he started his ministry. It's full of all kinds of notes. Uh, he, my grandfather, every sermon that he gave over 40 years, he handwrote every one of those sermons out, dated them, the location of where he gave the sermon. And I got those notebooks, lots of them. Uh, so I'm going to be preaching his sermons to you guys for a while. <laughs> no, why not, right? I promise you they're probably better than mine, so you'll, you'll be blessed by them. Uh, and I just was thinking about his legacy, right? This unbelievable legacy he's leaving behind. Listen, not because he's perfect. My grandpa wasn't perfect. He wasn't a perfect father. He, he wasn't the perfect husband. He wasn't the perfect pastor. There are times that I'm sure he had appetite confusion and got lured in by temptation. I'm sure there's some bulls of stew that he chased he shouldn't have. Um, I'm sure that invisible battle that's taken place at times knocked him flat on the ground. But the legacy he's leaving is that he didn't stay on the ground. He got back up. 
he got back up and he kept fighting and he refused to allow his appetites to rule his life. And because of that, he's able to leave this legacy. And here I am standing today, blessed and have such an advantage over other people that didn't get a legacy handed down to them like that. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to me and I'm so grateful for that. And I say all that to say, listen, None of us have an idea of how God may want to use us, what he may want to accomplish through us and through our kids and through our grandkids. And whenever you start to get to a place in your life where you think all these decisions are these singular decisions that you can keep controlled and contained and are not going to impact the other parts of your life, man, that, that's when the evil one's got you exactly where he wants you because it's all connected, right? So we go back to Jesus and he's standing there in front of the evil one who tells him, hey, just turn the stones into bread. I mean, come on, this will be cool, try it. But Jesus sees through it. He sees through it. He knows this is more than just a party trick, right? Jesus knows that this moment has been mislabeled. It's been mislabeled. The evil one has labeled this moment as, come on, this is your freedom. Come on, do this. Show your power, mislabeled. Come on, you deserve this. Mislabeled. Jesus says, no, nah, uh, it's much deeper than this. And that's exactly why Jesus responds with these words. Man does not live by bread alone. So you remember Jesus had just left the Jordan weeks earlier. He had heard the voice of his father God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And those words from his father God were louder than his stomach's growl. And this is Satan's oldest strategy, right? This is what he did all the way back, beginning of the Bible, in the garden. This is how Eve fell, Adam fell right behind her. Satan suggested to them back in the garden that God was withholding something good from them, right? That this something that he was withholding for them could actually make them more like him. And so what does Eve do? She stops seeing God as father and now sees God as rival. And so she strikes out to reach for what she thinks God is withholding from her. Satan convinced her that her appetites were a more reliable guide to what she needed than the word of her God. Right? And that's exactly where some of you are right now. You think your appetite, your desire is a more reliable guide for what you need than the word of your God. He's using that same strategy today. But Jesus is right. You can't live by bread alone. And if you allow your appetites to define you, they will destroy you. You live, in other words, by the word of your God, by who he says you are. And when you know who you are in God's eyes, when you know that you have been fully accepted and fully loved that God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to a cross to die for your sins. When you understand that he has a purpose for your life, that he wants nothing more than love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness for you. When you really understand that and believe that, he is the only one that can satisfy your soul that is so desperately searching right now. When you get that, not just here, but here, everything changes. Because when Jesus flees the temptation, he doesn't flee it because he doesn't like bread. He flees it because he wants more bread than Satan could ever provide. Yeah. 
so that bowl of stew, right, that looks so attractive right now, right, you flee that temptation not because you don't want love, not because you don't want purpose or you don't want acceptance or you don't want fulfillment or you don't want freedom. No, you flee that bowl of stew because you know that bowl of stew could never give you all the love and the purpose and acceptance and fulfillment and the freedom that your soul longs for. And let me say this. I'll just wrap up with this. Every single one of us, man, every single one of us could find ourselves tomorrow in a situation where we're still staring at a bowl of stew. And we are tempted to do something that we know goes against what God has called us to do. Every single one of us. But there are some of you that I would put in a high-risk category. And so I'm going to talk to my high-riskers for just a second, all right? Um, it, part of Satan's strategy also is not a coincidence that Jesus is at the end of a 40-day fast. He is physically weak even though he's spiritually strong. Some of you right now are physically weak. And when you're physically and mentally weak that is when you are probably most vulnerable. So for those of you right now that would say, man, like again, let's just say we go out for lunch today and we're sitting there. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? If your response to me is, ah, to be honest with you, I'm really tired. Or if you were to tell me, I'm just kind of burned out right now. I've been burning the candle at both ends. If you were to share with me that you're in a season right now where you feel a lot of anxiety, or maybe you feel some depression that you're kind of battling. If you were to tell me right now you're in a season where you feel really lonely, all of those things to me would be a red flag that you're extremely vulnerable in this season. Extremely vulnerable. And I think that's part of the reason that Jesus gave us this beautiful invitation in Matthew chapter 11 where he says, come to me. He said, hey, uh, don't, no, that bull is stew, uh-uh, it's not gonna do it. I know you're tired. I know you're weak. I know you're struggling. Come to me. Come, to, come here. He says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened. Right? That, that's all. I used a lot of different words to describe weary and burdened, but you get it. Right? If you're there, you know this. You feel this right now. All of you who are weary and burdened, he says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find, here's the beautiful promise, Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the key part, rest for your souls. Because the exhaustion that you feel right now in your life will not be fixed by a two-week vacation because you're exhausted at the soul level. Why are you exhausted at the soul level? Because that's where the battle's taking place. Right? Some of you have been tricked into thinking that the enemy is the Republicans or the enemy is the Democrats or the enemy is Russia or the enemy is what, what, you know, whatever you want to pick right now. No, no, the real battle is right here. It's this invisible world, this invisible battle that's taking place for your soul and for your heart. That's why you're exhausted. Right? Of course you're exhausted. And Jesus says, I can give you the kind of rest that you can't find anywhere else. This is rest for your soul. So he says, come to me. Just come here. Come to me. Stop chasing after this. Stop chasing after that. Stop chasing after, stop. Just stop and come to me because I'm the only one capable of giving you what you really desire in the depth of your soul.
my prayer for all of us is that we'll live with a greater awareness of this invisible war that's taking place. Again, I don't want you to be freaked out by it. I don't want you to obsess over it, but you need to be aware of it. And you need to be aware of appetite confusion because it happens to all of us. And most importantly, you need to be aware that Jesus and only Jesus can give you what it is that you're really chasing after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, the incredible opportunity to gather here to worship you. Grateful for everyone that's here, grateful for those that are watching online right now. God, I don't think that any of us are here today by accident. And God, there's probably some of us right now mm, who are staring at a bowl of stew. We're looking at trading the ultimate for the immediate. And God, we're lost and we're stumbling. And the invitation from you today is to walk away from that and to come to you. You say, just come to me. God, there's some that are here today that they fell for it. They took the stew. They traded the ultimate for the immediate. And today they're just overwhelmed with guilt. God, I pray that they will be reminded today that it's never too late. It is never too late to come home. That your grace abounds our worst sins, our worst mistakes, our worst decisions. That our past does not have to define us. But God, for those that haven't yet, oh, how they could be saved from so much of the fallout that happens when we trade the ultimate for the immediate. God, give us the strength to stand firm. Give us the wisdom to see the situations in our life that are mislabeled. And give us the strength to lean into you. This is not our battle. This is your battle. But we got to lean into you when we're in the midst of it. God, we love you. We are so grateful for you, for what you're doing in and through us. For it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Two quick things before you go. Number one, there's a prayer team down front. They would love to pray with you. You find yourself today just needing a little extra strength in the battle. Can't think of a better place than just coming down front and letting them pray with you and for you. Second thing, we have ice cream. Yeah, we're declaring this National Ice Cream Day. Don't think it's a thing, but it is for us, all right? So go out 16th Central, get you some free ice cream. It's not mislabeled. It's unbelievably healthy. Enjoy every bite of it. I hope you have an amazing week. We'll see you next weekend. God bless.